I gotta say that was probably my best sick I've ever oh, done. <laughs> <laughs> and it's beating the last time you were on meddling adults, which was your previous best sick you've ever done. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Welcome, fellow sleuths, to a very special edition of Meddling Adults. We are in between seasons one and two, but we didn't want to leave you all hanging high and dry without any sweet, sweet content to consume. So to bridge the gap, we have decided to put together a little meddling mailbag episode, just answering any and all questions you have about the show itself, stuff outside of the show, what goes into making it, just to give you a little peek behind the curtain. A peek behind the mask. Ah, a a peek behind the face covering, the face paint, the disguise to see (laughs) who's really behind this dastardly deed of a podcast. So yes, as you can hear, I've brought along Brandon Grugel, who you might remember from episode two. He's also on the Multitude production team that has helped shape the show. He's helped me with some music stuff that you will hear coming in the next season as we've revamped some of the music in the show, which is very exciting. It's Brandon Grugel. Brandon, how's it going? It's me. Hi, it's good. I wore my Bigfoot mask for this just for you. And you can't see me because it's a podcast, just like real big feet. (laughs) Big feet? What is the plural? Is there? Okay. Is there one Bigfoot? And if there is more, what's the plural of it? So far, I think there's only just the one. Okay. I've always been confused about, do we call him Bigfoot or Sasquatch? Like, what is the more correct term? Like, what does he want to be identified as? (laughs) And I could see maybe it being where Bigfoot is his name, but Sasquatch is like his genus or species or something. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's one Bigfoot, but there's multiple Sasquatches. Ah, yes. I believe that is correct. Cool. Great. It is now. (laughs) We solved the first mystery. Huzzah! The mystery of the Sasquatch! (laughs) So uh, we've got a whole bunch of questions. I just forwarded them all to you without looking at them because I think it's fun if I'm caught by surprise by some of the questions. So you've curated them and I'm very excited to hear which uh, which questions from the lovely audience you have for this episode. Yes, they're so lovely. We've got a lot of questions about like um, what kind of books might be fun. So I just want to see your take on them and see if you've read them at all. We'll start with this one from Rachel. Hey, Medley adults, love your show. Really gave me a much needed inspiration for writing and my D&D game. So here are my questions. Number one. Are you going to have a new mystery series like The Boxcar Children or books that aren't strictly mysteries like The Series of Unfortunate Events? That's question one. Have you read them? I have read the series of Unfortunate Events books. I thought they were very good. The problem with books like that and the Boxcar Children books, and unfortunately what I learned the hard way with Nancy Drew, is that it's really hard to do books that are 100 or more pages and it's only one mystery because the problem, which happened with Nancy Drew, is I would get through a whole book and then get to the end of it and then realize, ah, that wasn't very good. <laughs> and then I spent a lot of time reading a book and then it just doesn't work for the podcast. The good thing about the books where it's multiple mysteries per book, like Encyclopedia Brown, Clue Jr., I believe the regular Clue books are like this too where it's multiple mysteries per book is that worst case, if I read an Encyclopedia Encyclopedia Brown mystery and it doesn't work for the podcast, I've only invested, say, five to ten minutes into reading it, so it's okay. Like, every Encyclopedia Brown book has ten mysteries in it, and usually for an episode,
episode of Meddling Adults, I'll go through one book and there will be four in there that fit. And the reason a mystery might not fit is mainly just that it doesn't work for the show of did you notice the one thing that the detective noticed? And that's why Encyclopedia Brown is so perfect. And I'm very thankful that most people seem to like him because I think just for the format of the podcast, it works best for there's one tiny detail. Did you catch it? And then it's easier to ask that of an audience. Most people enjoy it, except for the guests on the show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah they're, I mean, they're super tricky. They, they really are. So to answer the original question, yes, there will be new series introduced. I have some that I have in mind. I have some that some people have helped me do research on, which has saved me some of the time of doing it. But Short answer, yes, there will be new mysteries, but unfortunately, I don't think the types of series where it's one entire book for one mystery will work. Unless unless we hire 60 people to read all the books. Yeah, unless we hire a professional <laughs> book reader. Hi, please just read all of these Nancy Drew books and tell me which ones work. <laughs> I have been on mic to try to get some Goosebumps stuff, which I know are usually long for novels, but I read a Goosebumps book recently for a podcast I was on. It was only like 60 pages. Okay, okay. And there's also short stories ones. So, Ooh, see, that's know. what's good. That's how we did Cam Jansen is they're normally one mystery per book, but the one that I did for the Cam Jansen episode was a three mystery in one book. Ooh. So if the series have ones like that with a bunch of tiny ones in it, let me know and I'm happy to do it. You know, if there was a, a boxcar bonanza book of a bunch of <laughs> mysteries in one that would work it's purely just the time investment because not every mystery works for the show and i can't spend you know a day reading a book and then say oh that didn't work right so if you do have any audience out there if you have any uh series that you want me to you know convince mike of let me know on twitter and i will get on it <laughs> all right next question thank you rachel so this one comes from kenzie q all right this is a little bit of a um what is it a hundred horse-sized ducks or ducks horses thing yes <laughs> who would solve a mystery quicker encyclopedia brown or nancy drew hmm fight 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 brain fight <laughs> <laughs> purely based on how it goes down in the books and i know that this is not a individual argument it's 100 percent because of the structures of the book but i would say encyclopedia brown just because it's usually very quick and nancy drew usually has to like get into danger and have her life threatened before she solves the mystery. Yeah. Like an integral part of the Nancy Drew thing is like, oh, I'm a gonna, I'm gonna die. <laughs> no, now I know who did it. <laughs> it's just like you know, she got to get that adrenaline rushing before right. she can get the the brain juices flowing. You know, yeah, that it's like sense. how I procrastinate all the time because I do my best work when I'm on a deadline and I think, oh no, I have to do this tomorrow, and then I'm really good. <laughs> it's kind of like Nancy Drew, except she's got to be you know facing near death. Right. <laughs> have you considered trying that in your work? <laughs> Yeah, I'm just going to hire a gunman. Like, <laughs> if I don't finish editing the draft of this podcast by Thursday, murder me. <laughs> It'll be effective. You're like, I'll edit that shit real quickly, man. <laughs> All right. So between Encyclopedia Brown and the uh, Mystery Machine Gang, what do they call themselves? The Mystery Gang? Uh, I want to say it's like Mystery Inc., I think is what they yeah, that's eventually the call themselves. But I don't know if they ever become truly incorporated yeah i don't know if they i've never seen the episode where they file for you know <laughs> an llc or whatever <laughs> it was a it's a lost episode it's very boring <laughs> i also don't imagine they have very good business skills but who knows so between them and encyclopedia brown encyclopedia brown still win i think he still would because i was gonna say 
Encyclopedia Brown solves really simple kind of stuff, but he doesn't because there's so many mysteries where his dad will bring home, his dad will come home and be like, oh man, I really can't solve this case of this bank robbery. And then Encyclopedia Brown's like, I've got it. The mystery <laughs> gang, they also, same kind of thing. They have to get into some hijinks in order to figure out who did it. They have to set up an elaborate trap for the person and then get them caught and then they figure it out on top of it that's true they also have a dog that's part of their group so like yeah. the level of intelligence probably isn't that high i wonder if they would be better if they just removed scooby from the situation he does sometimes come through with absurd antics that either catch the monster or reveal the villain but I feel like a lot of the episodes of Scooby-Doo involve saving someone from the gang from danger. So I just wonder if they reduce the roster a bit, if they'd be better suited. <laughs> yeah, if it's just Velma, then we solve more mysteries. Really, if Velma just gets contacts or wears rec specs, I think that they <laughs> easily destroy Encyclopedia Brown because a big portion of the plot is, I wear my glasses. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next question. This one is from Maya. Um, what books do you enjoy the most when you're looking for mysteries? I also want to hear like titles. I want to hear um, if there's been any individual books that you haven't used for the show, and if there's been any like series that you, um, outside of like being good for the show, have you've enjoyed the most? So I think what I've had the most enjoyable experience watching, reading, etc., is Scooby Doo because. Even if the mystery doesn't work for it, it's still an entertaining show to watch. And it's also just very interesting to watch a show that is so old because I've been doing the original Scooby-Doo. Now people have been asking me to do like the spinoff stuff and I might do some of the newer things. But it's just fascinating to watch a cartoon that is so old. And it's so unique to watch a cartoon show with a laugh track that I find <laughs> watching Scooby-Doo so interesting. <laughs> I forgot about that, yeah. It's so bizarre, but it's very charming. Did you know that, I I learned this recently, I think while, after we recorded our episode, I was just like looking up Scooby-Doo, that Scrappy-Doo was so like universally hated among the fandom around the time it's actually airing? I'm not surprised because he is very annoying. And I do know, I think that's why in when they made the movie version of Scooby-Doo in like the late 2000s, he ended up being the villain, spoiler alert. And I think that was whole, I think I that whole know. thing, I think, <laughs> I think that entire decision was a fan service of everyone hated Scrappy. So let's make him the bad guy kind of thing. That makes sense. I didn't, I didn't realize that. I guess I didn't watch many episodes with Scrappy in them, but like he's a little puppy. I always assumed everyone loved him. The problem is he's like if Danny DeVito, now, <laughs> Uh, he's like if Gilbert Gottfried became the puppy because, yes, he's a small puppy, but all he does, he actively just screws stuff up. He doesn't ever do anything good. All he does is get in the way and be like, Scooby, come on! And his voice is very annoying and like, he's very full of himself. He's just, Yeah, he's very frustrating as a character. So yeah, I would say Scooby-Doo is very entertaining. Um, there's one series that I do really want to make work. I don't know that this has been the most fun to watch, but it was the most bizarre is I found a couple of YouTube videos of the Mary-Kate and Ashley detective oh videos. Oh my God, yes. And at first I didn't think it would work because I thought they were full length movies, but they're really only like 20 to 30 minutes. So I don't know if the VHS tapes have multiple mysteries per tape, but the problem with them is that they are sometimes so incredibly easy that it wouldn't even be a question. <laughs> But the most bizarre element, which I, I've never watched these as a kid, so I didn't know and I just wasn't expecting it, is they are musicals. Like, they have multiple musical breaks uh -huh, uh -huh, in uh -huh. each mystery, and Mary-Kate and Ashley are not good at singing. <laughs> They're not good at all. 
It's just like when kids just kind of like talk rap a song, like we're going to solve a mystery today, 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 today. And like, it's so bad. And every episode has at least three songs in it. It's bizarre. How dare you? They are perfect and beautiful. And those things are wonderful treasures. <laughs> so I want to make those. Work. I had these when I was growing up. My family had like a VHS tape cabinet, like a lot of people did. And you'd open it up and it was just like, an entire side of it was all Mary-Kate and Ashley videos. And I remember now I'm looking up the um, box art of the mystery ones and they had a sidekick named Clue who was a basset hound. And that's yes. adorable. Yeah. The, like all of the non-singing elements of the show are really cute and I've enjoyed watching them. But yeah, so far all the ones I watched were just too easy, man. It was painfully obvious. So <laughs> I hopefully will find ones that are a little trickier because I know people have asking for that. I think it'd be really funny. Yeah, I love it. I would definitely do that. I might know them because I probably watched them. Ooh. Anyway, speaking of Scooby-Doo, Rivka asked if you're planning to do an episode with the Scooby-Doo movie. I did just reveal the the spoiler to it earlier <laughs> in this <laughs> in this episode. Uh, I think the problem with the movie, much like I said for some of the books, is it's just it is a very long time commitment in terms of prep. It would be hard because I would have to find like three Scooby-Doo movies if I wanted to make everything kind of the same vein. Yeah. And it's just like, it's too long of prep. The problem is that I don't think people realize how many mysteries I throw out that like Encyclopedia Brown, I will read them. And there's so many that just simply don't work. How many are there in a book? There's 10 in a book. And for this first season, we did five Encyclopedia Brown episodes and I got all the way up to book 10. Oh, wow. So that would be 80 mysteries that just got thrown out. Oh, wow. So at some point during like season 30 of the show, you're going to have to start writing your own mysteries. Yeah. I mean, thankfully there's at least 50 Encyclopedia Brown books, which is good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I at least have a bit of a buffer. <laughs> And to clarify, I actually made this a real question, but Rivka did say, can you do an episode reviewing the cinematic masterpiece that is the 2004 Scooby-Doo movie? <laughs> but we know this is not a Scooby-Doo review show, so uh, <laughs> let's go to the next question. This one's from Jess. Do you think you've gotten better at solving children's mysteries thanks to this podcast? And do you still think you'd... F <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just read this second part. And do you think you'd still fall for Little Bagman for the Little Bagman red herring if you had all this mystery solving experience before reading Harry Potter? I think I would still fall for the Ludo Bagman thing because of the way it was set up. It was me just really falling for JK's trap in that it was similar to the way she set up other villains in the previous books in the series. So I really thought I nailed it. And also Ludo Bagman kind of falls under the the Scooby-Doo premise that I usually follow, which is like he's one of the first guys you meet and he's not overly <laughs> sketchy, but he's always there. Yeah. And that is usually a pretty good recipe. His name is Ludo Bagman. If he's not the bad guy, who is? <laughs> <laughs> so I think I would probably still fall for it. I do think I've gotten better at the mysteries, um, mainly just because I have gotten a sense, at least for Encyclopedia Brown, I've gotten a sense of what kind of stuff to look out for. And I think some of the things that seem a little more out of left field, I'm, I'm keener on picking them up. I will say I'm exactly the same at solving Scooby-Doo because I will never not guess the first person that you meet. I will <laughs> always, 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 always guess that. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, you sort of get the um, sort of uh, pattern that there is to all these children's books because children love consistency. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. yeah, I'm sure they love all the like the same going through the same mystery and just varying up the details so that yeah. makes sense though i will say the last 
Encyclopedia Brown book I read for the season one finale, those were really hard. They were really, really hard. So I'm excited to see if uh, Donald J. Sobel or David, I think it's Donald J. Sobel is the author. <laughs> I always get it mixed between Donald and David. But Mr. Sobel, uh, maybe he like really ramped up his game once he got into the double digit books in the series. I wonder if that's when he maybe, do we know if he wrote all the books or did he bring on like a people to ghostwrite books too? I think he wrote all of them. I know that Nancy Drew is a ghostwriter situation, but I think that all of the Encyclopedia Brown ones are by Sobel. Which oh, is wow. really cool. That's really I, I guess it makes sense. They're shorter and it's more of just like a compilation of riddles as opposed to yeah. a story with a plot and but character st- development. Still that many riddles? Like that's why. That's what I don't know. I don't I I would I I don't think he's still alive, but I want to just know his process of how he did it. Like, did he have a big riddle book and then he turned them into stories? Or was this man just incredible at coming up with various puzzles? Yeah. That's and wild. does all of his family hate him because they just <laughs> hide he just hides stuff all throughout the house? So like, you should have known that there was a splinter in your finger, meaning I hid it under the deck. <laughs> Um, I also want to you to know that I just found out that there was a HBO TV live action adaptation called Encyclopedia <gasps> Brown that ran in 89. Whoa. There was 10 episodes, it looks like. That could be so very fun. Yeah, I got to find them. Uh, and there was an hour long special, it looks like. That's really cool. But the rest of them were 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, here's another one from Rivka. Uh, this one's very interesting to me too, cause I like process things. What's the process of writing down the riddle? Do you first read, watch, and then write? Or do you write as you watch and read? Uh, they say, I feel like I would have such a hard time concentrating, which is very real. Uh, I had to read, yeah, that Goosebumps book for another podcast, and I took one note, and <laughs> <laughs> I'm supposed to take notes in JTP frequently, and I frequently forget to. <laughs> so the process differs from book to book to TV show to whatever. But for Scooby-Doo, for example, I will watch the episode on either 1.5 or two times speed. You monster. (laughs) Just to watch it through. And then if it works, I'll go back watching it on one time speed and then typing along to put down little bullet points for when I recap it. Especially since I know what's already happening next. I don't have to like actively listen and keep pausing to write stuff down. For Encyclopedia Brown, since they're short enough, I usually just go through the mystery, see if I can guess it. If I do get it right too easily, then I decide it's too easy, uh, and then I throw it out. But <laughs> if it ends up working, I get it wrong, whatever, then I will go back. But I always make sure that I write down my guess before looking at the answer so that I'm not cheating. But yeah, for the most part, it's me going through the thing first without taking notes because I don't want to read a thing, take a bunch of notes on it, and then I get to the end and then realize, oh, no, it doesn't work for the show. You know, it was either too easy or it wasn't the right type of reveal. And that's the big thing that that comes down to a lot of it is is just like, if it's not a, ah, there's this one thing, gotcha. Like if it was with the Nancy Drew thing, so much of a problem was that the way she would solve the mystery is by slowly crossing out potential suspects until there was Mm. only one left. And that just Mm -hmm. doesn't work for meddling adults because I want to ask the audience, what's the one thing that you know that makes someone guilty? So it has to be like a gotcha. So I make sure that it is a gotcha formula mystery and then I go back and take bullet points on it. Yeah. How does this differ from your notes taking process for Potterless? Is it the same? Are your notes just as ridiculous? So it's similar. For Potterless, I usually have more of a split between 
recapping what happened and then making sure I write down sick jokes that I want to make so that I don't (laughs) forget in the moment to make those jokes. With meddling adults, usually, since I'm just kind of hosting the show, I, I focus more on making sure the plot is recapped well. And I think the biggest difference is... I actually curate the summaries after I write them. Whereas Potterless, I just kind of like take all the bullet points and then I go through the bullet points. The thing with meddling adults note-taking is that I try to make sure that I don't have too much extra stuff in there so that it's confusing for the guest. Because if it's so long, they're going to forget everything. And then they're going to keep asking questions and then it's going to drag on. That was another question I had too. So a lot of these are like, you have to know this this little detail to know to get the mystery, right? Like, how do you... As I've been listening, I've never noticed you sort of like put emphasis on anything, but the answer is always in there. Right. How do you like thoughtfully thread that needle of like too much information or not enough information or whatever it is? That's integral to the note taking is that I always make sure Encyclopedia Brown already does this in the book where they'll have a couple things that you can pick on or basically if I'm ever reading it. And there's something where I think that's kind of weird. You know, if they say the color of something, that just always seems unnecessary. And yeah, yeah. if they if they say that someone had an expression on their face, that's always suspicious. So at any time when I'm reading it, if there's something that stands out to me as seeming a little fishy, I make sure that that's in there so that that way when I'm reading it, there's enough of those huh moments where it can get lost in it. Mm. And that's also some of the times when a mystery doesn't work is that if there's not enough potential things you can pick up on and there's really only one weird thing that happens it just makes it too easy right as far as for not encyclopedia brown stuff like for scooby-doo or what happened with cam jansen or clue jr i try to make sure that there are enough suspects and then there's enough information that could make you make some sort of jump to a conclusion to pick that suspect so i think for some of the mysteries like encyclopedia brown it's more about having enough weird things that seem fishy. And then for things like Nancy Drew and for Scooby-Doo where it's more suspect-based, I try to make sure that the mystery has at least two people that could conceivably be the suspect and that the evidence that is there from the episode and then also what I actually read is enough 50-50 split so that it doesn't seem too suspicious for one person. Like if I listed off eight things that suspect A did and only two things that suspect B did, (laughs) it probably is going to make it clear. So I try to make sure that when I'm talking about suspects, I give an even distribution so that my guests will try to pick up on either of them the same amount. Yeah. No, I, yeah, you definitely do that very well. It's very, I don't think I'd be able to do that. It's very tricky. Do you have any favorite moments or mysteries that surprised you from season one and most importantly do you have any favorite guests from season one uh, my favorite guest is brandon grugel yes um, <laughs> <laughs> i think favorite guest i gotta pick my parents it was just so cool <laughs> it was All right, just, fine. i'll give you that one <laughs> it was just so cool having them on the show they were so appreciative to be on it and they were so cute beforehand they were all nervous and then afterwards they were like that was so much fun like i hope people like it like it was so cool having them <laughs> it's on. wild that they have a new spotify original series now too. yeah uh-huh the them and the obamas just have their own <laughs> podcast going on on spotify so i th- I think that for sure would be for favorite guys it was just cool having my parents on a pod as far as favorite mysteries 
I think the one that took me by the most surprise, which was just a perfect mix of, it was absolutely ridiculous to watch. And then the reveal was very interesting, was the Stonehenge tennis one from (laughs) Scooby-Doo that I did with Hal and Gabrielle in episode six, I think. That was so ridiculous of a story. Honestly, I don't know if I followed it completely because it was so wild. (laughs) There was so much going on, but I did love that it still followed the the first person you meet is guilty thing, which just makes me really happy anytime that happens in Scooby-Doo. It was just so interesting, the fact that there were two people guilty and they actually turned out to be brothers, even though they mm-hmm. were different characters set up. And I also just love that that whole episode, Hal kept guessing that it was two people. Yep. And that was the only mystery where it actually was two people. So it was just very <laughs> satisfying for, I think, it's, I think it's pretty unconventional to guess that it's two people in a Scooby-Doo episode because it's usually just one person. And the fact that Hal was so keen on that made me really happy that he eventually was correct with it. So I think that's my favorite just because yep. it was absurd, but then also checked my little box of, haha, it was the first person we met. <laughs> <laughs> I love that how throughout it was just like, I'm not going to solve any of these fucking riddles. <laughs> and then he just got, he got that one randomly by chance. Everyone has been very worried about their performance beforehand. And then I think everyone ends up performing better than they expected. And I think the tone setter was that season one, episode one was just so hard. And Eric and Julia did so bad (laughs) that everyone was petrified that they were going to lose. (laughs) And anytime any new guests like listen to an episode, they're probably listening to the first one on the feed, which might be the first episode. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So I think a lot of people got spooked just because those two were so bad. (laughs) Yep. The mysteries were, I will say, a little harder. But yeah, they also could, it could just be a combination of them being complete doo-doo at kids' mysteries. Yep, yep. I mean, I'm not going to say it, but someone has to, so. (laughs) So let's go back to the beginning, though, because I'm curious as well. How did you go about making the art and the music and all the, like, tonal stuff around the show? What is the, like, process of, of making the show a show? Yeah, so this is the same kind of process that I've done for Horse and originally for Potterless when we rebranded a little bit. It's, I just love the process of find people you know that are very talented and then just give them vague instruction, not super vague, but like as good of instructions as possible, but then let them be creative with it. So for the music, obviously I've worked with Bettina multiple times on podcast theme songs. So I messaged her and I just said, hey, I'm making a new show. It's a whodunit mystery show. So if it could be something somewhat like mystery film noir-y sounding, I think that would be really cool. And then I sent her just an example of something that I found on like a royalty-free website. And if you listen to the pilot, if you're in the multi-crew, that was actually, I think I put it in the intro. I sent her that thing. The the, the, stock song? Yeah, the placeholder (laughs) royalty-free stock song. So I just sent her that, which was very much like a doom, 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 which was my original idea. (laughs) Because I also thought the logo was going to be more film noir which we still got some elements of in. I sent her that, and the best was, and this is why I love Bettina, is she just replied two days later with a, a little draft of it. And she said, I gave it mad Sonic the Hedgehog vibes, if that's okay. Uh, and then... <laughs> <laughs> And then it was uh, like there was no correction to be made. What she sent as her first draft was what we ended up using for season one. And it was just like (laughs) it was so different from what I sent and what I asked for. But it was still like exactly perfect at the same time. Like, I, I don't know how to describe other than that. 
I, I just told her a lot of the vibe I was going for, of like something with suspense, something very like bass heavy and something that's like funky and jazzy would be cool. And then she sent me that and it was yeah. just perfect. Like it, it has, it has elements of suspense in it. Like I think that final note is really like suspenseful mystery sounding, which I think really mm-hmm. brings it together. But then it's also just really fun with the, uh, marimba and the tambourine and the drum beat in the background and the Mortal Kombat round one was very fun. So that's not you. It's not. It's not. But when we eventually, and I'll give this away as a spoiler, someone on Reddit suggested like, oh, for season two, you should make it say round two. And uh, thankfully, I think they go up to round four in some of the new Mortal Kombat's. Yeah, how many rounds are there? <laughs> so I think in the original game, it was just three. It's just best of three. And even for three, they say final round. But I think there's some things where they, they say others. We'll try to find as many round whatever clips as we can. But spoiler alert for season two, Brandon has helped remaster the song and we put in round two instead of round one. So yeah, maybe it'll be me when we get to, you know, season 17 and I'm like, round 17. You know, I'll have to start saying You have saying the voice it. for it. <laughs> Just then sounded great. <laughs> so I think we'll be all right. So that's why we made the song. That was um, user Long Peanut on Reddit, by the way, who asked that. Oh, thank you for finding that. Shout out to Long Peanut. And user Job, I believe, who gave us the YouTube link for around four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Job is actually one of the moderators too. So they've done a lot of help with the Reddit and doing automatic posts. So shout out to user Job with the O is a zero. So now as we're in between seasons, Brandon has worked with me in a similar way to help remaster the song a little bit, just tweak things a little thing here and there. Brandon is very good at sound design and mixing. You are very easy to work with because I don't know technical stuff. So I just say like vague things as much of like emotion as I can. And then you are somehow able to translate emotion into musical stuff and then it works. So I appreciate (laughs) you so much. (laughs) That's what you got to do as an engineer. (laughs) Everyone's like, "Uh, I want it to feel more sad. And you're like, oh, you mean you want this to be minor (laughs) (laughs) or whatever it is. The best is I took a screenshot of a a particular part and I'm going to put this on social media because it's so funny is there's a point where I'm talking about bass notes and stuff and trying to make it sound the right level. And I said, it feels like it's so deep that it's harder to tell the distinct notes apart. And I just love that upward run before it resets. And I want that to be heard clearly. And then you eventually go, yeah, you want the attack of the bass to be heard more, but also keep deep subtones how they are. It's totally possible. And I said, yeah, right. I knew that. (laughs) 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 So it's just stuff like that, where a lot of what I do, because I don't have the capacity in my musical or audio editing knowledge is just like trying to get as much emotion and explanation of how I want something to feel. And then I'm working with people who are able to translate that into actual work and it works out very well. Yeah. I imagine it's similar to sort of some of the engineering stuff or, or maybe like an engineer that might work with an architect of like, yeah, we're building this building, but um, you know, the point of it is it's aesthetic beauty. Right. So it's, it's, balancing those two things and you have to have both sides of the coin in order to get that across definitely um so that's that's how all the music came to be and then as far as the logo i tweeted about making the show and Yan, who is the artist she ended up replying saying hey i have some ideas for what the art could look like because at this point i had announced it and i believe we made the pilot for it but i hadn't started working on the art so we ended up dming back and forth and just kind of gave some information back and forth of like what I was looking for, what she had in mind. Before she even replied, I said that I wanted something where like it was turning the classic film noir guy in a trench coat with the big fedora and it's all silhouetted, but 
turning that instead of being all black and white and moody into like bright and vibrant and very loud. And that's why the colors are so bright and in your face and being very on brand for me, the, the actual color spectrum, the pink, the blue and the yellow all come from the Miami Heat Vice jerseys that came out this past season, the basketball team. Uh, (laughs) It's all the exact hex codes from their jerseys. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to say, like, from pairs of pants you own, but (laughs) that's also good. (laughs) I mean, I do have, I don't have yellow pants. I got yellow shorts, but I do have light blue and pink pants that are pretty close Mm -hmm. to, uh, to the logo. So... I sent her that color swab of what I wanted and that idea. And then I also, I was a part of a Nancy Drew themed improv show when I was in Seattle and it was super fun. And they had someone do the poster for it and they made it look like the old Nancy Drew cover. And I don't know the name of this art style, but it's it's what the, the background looks like of the cover art where it's, you know, it's, it's very old school, but it's still pastel-y and bright. And it's a lot of like block filling in kind of stuff, just a very old school animation type vibe. Kind of like if you have those national parks posters, you know, like whatever art style that is, the old old school kind of thing. So I wanted that kind of vibe. And then when Mayan sent over the draft that she had, it mimicked that Nancy Drew cover from the second book, which is the iconic one, her walking up the staircase. And I thought that was perfect. And then... We originally had just a person in a trench coat, and then I thought, wouldn't it be funny if we had three kids in a trench coat since we're doing (laughs) children's mysteries and all of that, and it would be silly and funny and a a fun play on it. So that was the longest part of trying to figure out how we make it look like it's definitely kids in a trench coat. So that's why there's the sneaker hanging out. And then there was a lot of discussion of like, I think the kid should be blonde because then he'll look more like a kid. And the hat, like that (laughs) that took the longest. (laughs) Like that took the longest. And then the only other thing of note is that the actual font at the top, meddling adults, Mayan drew that by hand, but it is inspired by DC Comics has a series called, I believe, which is how they got their name, Detective Comics. And yep. that it's that kind of thing where it slants together. So she made it based off of what that looked like, and that's why it has the shape that it is. So it's got yeah, it a little bit of, you know, a little bit of Nancy Drew, a little bit of Detective Comics, a little bit of Vincent Adult Man from BoJack Horseman. Uh, and <laughs> that's how we landed at the cover. And then, of course, a little bit of the Miami Heat Vice jerseys. <laughs> of course, because you always need that in everything you do. Everything needs to be basketball. Everything yep. is basketball. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Um, what was the process of like developing the show? I remember when we did a we you brought it to us. Uh, we did a brainstorm meeting and we were just like brainstorming a bunch of different ideas in various genres. And the idea was, what if we what if what if we read mystery? <laughs> what if we tried to solve children's mysteries? And everyone was like, oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. And then you went off and and then we we did it. Yeah. So we had an ideation session with Multitude in November, and I was home for it because of the Padreless live show slash. Thanksgiving. And since live shows were on the brain, I was thinking we were trying to come up with ideas for new podcasts. And it was just, you know, like a creative experience of, okay, from scratch, just come up with a new podcast idea. Because we're always coming up with pitches of multitude, but this was a nice way for us to just kind of make something new and see if you can make something from it. And that's where meddling adults came from. So I was trying to think of what made our live shows fun and what made the Potterless 
show that we did in November fun is that was when we did the bracket to find the most interesting non-essential character. And (laughs) (laughs) what made that so fun and why I think it worked so well is that there were actual stakes at hand. It was a competition like someone was going to win out of a lot of different contestants and people got really invested in rooting for their favorite and hoping that the person they're supporting gets through. So I was thinking, okay, what since stakes is so fun, like what is something we could do in the form of a podcast that would have stakes? So naturally doing some sort of game show was the first thought. So I tried to think of, okay, we've got something from the live shows that people really like. And then I tried to think like, okay, what's something that we do in other podcasts that people like? And one of the first things I thought was, well, people find it really funny when I guess stuff wrong in Potterless, <laughs> like that's easily the most well-received stuff is the things like the Ludo Bagman thing and the Hermione thing where I was just super <laughs> wrong and the Mad-Eye Moody thing. So I was trying to think of ways to kind of put those two together. And my first thought was I just love Encyclopedia Brown books. And I thought it'd be really funny to see like, is there a way we could get people just to do a bunch of Encyclopedia Brown books. And originally we thought of doing it as a way where it could be a multitude show with like a rotating guest. I think some of the other ideas that it, that sparked it was we have head, heart, gut, and that, again, it also has some sort of stakes. So that was in the brain. And we were trying to think of, you know, could we make a show that's like head, heart, gut, where a bunch of multitude people are in the mix, but maybe it's not like a, a multi-crew exclusive kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So all those put together made me land at the idea of doing meddling adults. And I think at first I was only thinking of Encyclopedia Brown. But then everyone at Multitude started, you know, punching up the idea a bit. And that's when it expanded to not just being one book series, being a couple different things. And then as we thought about it more, it ended up making more sense to have like one host as opposed to rotating people out from a work perspective. And then we had that idea. And then once COVID and stuff happened, that is when it really formed from just this podcast idea And I had been thinking about it, but COVID just made it extra on the brain. A lot more time to think. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, a lot more time to think for sure. But with COVID, it made the the one idea I had, which was what if we raised money with it? COVID cemented that thought. Because I I had had this idea for a long time of it would be cool to have some sort of Patreon account that we just had and used to raise money to give to charity. Mm -hmm. Because I know there there was a YouTuber back when I was in the YouTube days, Kev Jumba, who had his main account, and then he had a secondary account where he would, when people had secondary accounts on YouTube back then, it would just be like blooper reels or daily vlogs or like lower effort stuff. And he set up a separate account for it where basically all of the money that he got from these videos that he didn't care that much about, he would donate to charity. And then each month pick a different one with how much money was raised off of his uh, Google ad money. And I always thought that was really, really cool. And that's kind of what sparked Potterless doing monthly donations too, so... That's what I thought of for meddling adults. And then, yeah, we just ended up with COVID. You, Amanda, and Eric really pushed me to to make it. It felt like the perfect kind of thing to make during the quarantine. That's why so many of the guests were people that already were full-time podcasters because then I knew that they would have (laughs) recording setups at home and everything. That was like a big factor in it. I look forward to the day when we're back in the studio and I can get not just established podcasters on the show. Like we can actually bring people in, but just for simplicity of making it work, that's why so many people were podcasters that 
you know, already have all their home set up. You guys met with me a bunch. We had a bunch of different calls about like tweaking the idea and figuring out how we're going to release it and all that. And we ended up landing in meddling adults. Yeah, I think the idea that it was going to be for charity really cemented the thing. Like it really encapsulated it into a, a fully thought idea, which was uh, it's always nice to see those like click moments where it's like, oh, yeah, now this is a full thing. Like this is 100% a thing now. Yeah. And I think it's something that we're always trying to do at Multitude is we're trying to make shows, first off, that are accessible for everyone. But I also think it's important when we make shows that they are unique and different and there's nothing like it. I don't think that there is a sports podcast that is truly done the way Horse is done. I know for a fact that there is no audio sitcom besides Next Stop. Uh, So I think a, a big thing for us is trying to find a way, not only how do we make a podcast that is fun and enjoyable to listen to, but how do we do something unique and different and really try to stand out. Cause that's just so important with podcasting. That's what made Potter was big is like, I, you know, it's one of the, I learned afterwards, I wasn't the first to do it, but like the, the whole <laughs> reading the Harry Potter series for the first time when almost every other Harry Potter podcast is like lifelong friends who've read it 70,000 times recapping. Right. It's like, let's get this dumb shit. Who doesn't know anything <laughs> like <laughs> messing up everything. <laughs> so I I, th- I agree. Like once once the idea really cemented itself to raise money for charity and just try to totally make it a charity based show, that is I think what really made us light the fire under our butt to actually make it and turn it from not just an idea but actually make it a podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And and I really appreciate like I I want that's why. All through that first season, we were always saying it was co-produced by Multitude because it was like an active learning process. I think if it wasn't COVID, we probably could have worked more before release and then had a bit more time to think. But it was important for us to try to do something to help in the moment. And it just felt like the right time to get this show out and use it as like a test run to see if it's successful. And I was constantly having calls with you guys before the season, during the season, after we made the pilot. Um, just bouncing ideas off of you, Eric and Amanda, about just trying to shape the show and refine the show. And I'm very happy where we landed. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think it's uh, something that we've been doing partly advanced because of the quarantine, but like really just like moving fast and experimenting and see what sticks and then move on if it doesn't, whatever. I think it's a really fun philosophy. And it's worked so far. <laughs> I, I think so too. Uh, I have a question for you. Like from your perspective, since I don't really do this, like how does it feel for you to be on the production team of a podcast that obviously that you help with, but you're not necessarily in the weeds of every single day. Because for me, all the podcasts I work on, I'm doing so much of it. How, from your perspective, like how does it feel to help produce a show that you don't necessarily have your hands in every single bowl of? Yeah, it's weird. Like um, I really sort of learned how to do this as I was advancing in my career. Cause I eventually got to a place where like my time was better, according to my bosses, <laughs> my time was better spent um, working on like uh, overall strategy as opposed to like in the weeds day to day stuff. Um, and it's that's a tough thing to get out of. Like, I think it's a really hard uh, mindset to especially for someone like you and me who like really like having their hands like on the tape, you know. Right. But it's also like super rewarding, like especially because I know because I used to like play music and stuff that my ideas personally speaking are generally always bettered by other people like being on a team my ideas usually become more than they were and so I like to do the reverse where it's like when people have ideas I like to be that person who's a team member on their team and uh, try to make their thing like the best version of what it is and it's really fun because other people come up with things that you would never think of obviously so like if all the multitude shows were yours or mine like they would all have the same similar like 
art style and music style and it would all be very samey, but because it's all a bunch of individual collective people pulling their weight together, um, we get things like a theme song that I would never have thought of and like a color palette for the art that I would never have picked out for myself, but I really love, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's really rewarding to see um, the sort of unique characteristics of each person come out through their shows if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think the way you're describing it is almost like the way I was describing earlier with working with the artists to make the art and the music and even Kelly with the website is if you give people free reign to operate in an area where you know that they are going to be fine on their own. Right. You just give them as like as much instruction and feedback as you can and then they come back with work and then you continue to tweak it. And I think that's nice. And it also reminds me of when I did sketch comedy stuff in Seattle. We would have these brainstorming sessions where someone would bring a sketch to the table and then it would just be like 15 minutes of people saying like, what if you did this? What if you did this? What if you did this? And then they would go back and make version two. And that person still truly created the sketch, but you had just like that little bit of insight from everyone else that you wouldn't have thought of initially. And then you just get to like pick the things that you like and then the end result ends up being better because of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, I know, I think all three of us, me and Amanda and Eric, and I think some of the other folks on the team have read the the Pixar book about, I think it's called Creativity Inc. I have it ordered. I need to read it. <laughs> yeah, it's very similar to that, what you just described, um, the Pixar method of bringing forward a project where the owner still has ownership over it and can accept or reject any like, offer of change or offer of um addition but like really uh yes ending the idea um into oblivion you know (laughs) yeah for sure for sure and i am very happy of all of the yes ending that we did to make meddling adults the way it is now and i'm very happy with what we've created and i'm excited to see the uh the continual changes and tweaks we make to the show going forward whether it's picking new mysteries or switching stuff up or doing something different for one season just for fun i'm very excited to see uh where this bad boy goes me too and folks i will continue to be on mic about getting goosebumps and i also just found sherlock holmes short stories so (laughs) yeah i mean if anyone finds stories you think will work, please send an email to middlingadults at gmail.com and just keep in mind, like, if it's quicker stuff to go through, the better. So any of those books where it's like multiple mysteries per book are perfect. TV shows where it's like under 20-minute episodes, anything like Mm. that, I'm happy to try out new things. I have a running Google Doc called series people have told me to look into and then i just look into all the stuff as i'm trying to find out new stuff for future seasons that's cute <laughs> yeah well brandon thank you so much for uh, helping me out doing this old mailbag this was very fun and i hope thank everyone you. enjoyed the uh, little peek behind the meddling curtain i'm very <laughs> well, i don't think we should call it a metal curtain. <laughs> 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 i'm very glad that you allowed me to cover up the fact that i cannot read for 60 minutes so the power the power of editing oh yeah that's that's one thing i also wanted to mention is this is one of the first times where I truly let someone else edit a show without putting as much of my hands into it, which was hard. Horace, Eric did a lot of the editing and then I would still give some notes and then he would take those notes into account. But yeah, it got to a point over the creation of this season where I just wasn't sleeping enough and uh, we had to get some help in the mix and that's why Persia came in and helped out and she did some great work and it was hard for me to pull back the reins since I'm so obsessive with the editing style that I do for Potterless that I think it was a good exercise for me to be okay with the not having to touch every single aspect of everything because that's just not feasible and I think it was a good learning experience for me of 
of working with an editor, which is something I will have to do going forward if I continue to work on podcasts because it's just not Mm -hmm. feasible to not do that. Yep. It's a rude awakening, but it's a necessary one. <laughs> yeah. So I, I appreciate the work that Percy did as well because it, it made my life better in that I got to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> it's very oh, important. Yes. Well, Brandon, thanks for coming on. And everyone listening, thank you so much for listening. Thanks to everyone who has been a patron and raised money over these past couple of months for the charities, as well as everyone who has joined in the raffles so far for the two books. We'll be revealing the winners of those when we do the charity recap episode where I give a little description of all the charities winners and losers not just the ones that won <laughs> uh, every single charity I'll be discussing in an episode and I'll also reveal who won those those raffles but we've raised a good chunk of money for that as well which is really cool because I think that this first season is going to be the highest expense wise because we had to buy things like the website and the domain and paying artists for the music and the logo. There's a lot of one-time expenses this first season. So I feel like the, the charity giving out won't be as high, but thankfully with the extra stuff that we've gotten from the little raffle, it's kind of offsetting those so we can give out more to these very deserving causes and organizations, which I feel great about. So thank you all so much. It's the generosity, like literally you are the ones keeping this going of how much money raises all thanks to you and i can't thank you enough i love it yeah thank you everyone is so even though the show is about detective kids what keeps this show truly going is our wonderful listeners who are the true meddling adults oh i get it <laughs> <laughs>